1: Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Vermont State Senator Christopher Pearson. Thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure. So, Senator, what do the results of the 2018 midterms mean for your state going into the upcoming legislative session?
2: Well, I think it means um, that we have a lot of work ahead, obviously. We have a Republican governor here. And a strong Democratic majorities in the House and Senate, and so one of the dynamics locally is that we reelected our governor, but also got stronger majorities, potentially veto-proof majorities in the legislature. So I think Vermonters are clear; they want us to solve problems, they want us to work together, and from my point of view, that's a good thing because we have uh, a little more room to push the governor on issues like a $15 minimum wage, paid family leave. Those were a couple of priorities of ours that he vetoed last year. And um, I look forward to, to putting those back on his desk and hopefully uh, having increased pressure for him to sign them. So why did
1: the Republican governor win re-election, especially by such a large margin?
2: Well, you see that in a lot of New England states. We tend to shift when there's an open seat. From whichever party held the seat last. So um, in the 2000s, we had a Republican governor. He stepped down in 2010 and we elected a Democrat and he stepped down in 2016. We elected a Republican. So it's a pretty consistent pattern in Vermont. Phil Scott tends to be more moderate. He was very vocally opposed to Trump. So he, you know, uh, is a New England moderate Republican who's Actually, been able to use the Trump and the National GOP chaos to paint a a different picture of himself that has uh, worked for voters, I guess.
1: And how accurate would you say the moderate picture is?
2: It really does depend on the issues. If you look at uh, again, going back to uh, minimum wage, you know, the governor is not supportive of us advancing the minimum wage at least to fifteen dollars. We'll see if he decides to join our debate and and try to offer an alternative. Um, so in those ways, in your, your basic economic ways, in standing up for teachers and public education, in that way he's pretty mainline Republican, been um, happy to kind of bludgeon public employees, as you see too often at the national level. But then he signed some pretty sweeping gun bills in Vermont which was unusual for any Vermont governor, let alone a Republican. So uh, it really does depend on the issues. He is not exactly one thing. He, he um, tends to work on both sides, um, depending on whatever issues is in front of him.
1: You are a member of the Progressive Party. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
2: We really sprung up when Bernie Sanders was the mayor of Burlington he was always elected as an independent, but around him there grew uh, what became the Progressive Coalition. In the late '90s, the Progressive Coalition had been sending legislators to Montpelier, and of course, Bernie Sanders was in the U.S. Congress at that point. In the late '90s, we became an official party, started running for governor and statewide offices, and starting started to really expand outside of Burlington. In a significant way, we are now the easily the most successful third party. I think we have seven members in the Vermont House. We have two of us in the Senate, but then a lot of more and more Democrats in both chambers are opting to run as a fusion candidate with our label. Um, so, depending on how you look at it, we have um, over ten uh, legislators, actually closer to fifteen, with a progressive. Uh, nomination that are working in Montpelier. We've had progressives in in the Vermont legislature since the 1990 election. And, um, you know, it really shows in the the issues we're able to push through the entire process.
1: And what are the major differences, you would say, between the progressive party and the Democratic party?
2: Well, at some level, you can tell that by who funds our elections. Uh, We don't take any corporate money. We tend to be... um, very focused on on economic justice on climate issues on uh reproductive rights on racial equity, there are many of our friends in the Democratic Party who share those values, but with progressives, you tend to get more consistent principles on 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 the big issues of the time, you know whether it's tax fairness, corporate welfare tuition free college universal health care. You know, we're pretty aligned on all of those issues. You don't have um, the squishiness that sometimes you see in, in the bigger parties. And what accomplishments
1: has the progressive party had?
2: Well, um, you know, we have a very progressive income tax in Vermont. We have, uh, we've expanded Medicaid, we've been very creative with trying to bring prescription drug reform relief, uh, or prescription drug cost relief, I should say to Vermonters. We've been pretty out in front on energy issues. Uh, we have the greenest grid in the country. We uh, try and think. We we last year, um, the Vermont Senate where I serve and I helped pass a bill to ban corporate donations in, in political campaigns. Actually, that did not get picked up in the House, unfortunately. Um, you did see us legalize marijuana through the legislature. We were the first to do that. We Uh, We're one of the first states at the legislative level to pass a $15 minimum wage. Unfortunately, that was vetoed. Uh, So there's a host of examples, whether it's justice reform, economic justice, environmental justice, where we have really been pushing the debate for a long time. You know, it's not all bumper sticker stuff, but uh, we were the first state to create an efficiency utility. That had a lot to do with progressive leadership in the legislature where we uh, found a way to reward customers and and businesses for actually using less electricity, uh, which is a, a savings to the overall community. But obviously very important if you're looking at climate issues and energy efficiency and, and green energy, you, you want to have your energy use be as efficient as possible. So there's a, there's a host of issues we we have uh, we were the first state to legalize gay marriage through the legislature. Uh, many of the advances we've made in in Vermont do trace back to initiatives that progressive legislators pushed.
1: And in terms of ideology, Bernie Sanders is probably the most high profile Democratic socialist in the country. Does the Progressive Party identify with Democratic socialism?
2: Uh, well, not as a party necessarily. I think many of us do individually, uh, but that has not been a big part of our discussion uh, or our persona in Vermont necessarily. Really what that label does get down to is how you view
1: how our economic system would work. What would you say your personal ideology on that is?
2: Well, I, I, I would agree with those basic tenets. When you're working full time, you should not live in poverty. We have gross income inequality. I I have a persistent record on trying to make our uh, school funding be based on income because I believe the wealthy need to pay their fair share. Uh, We bristle at at corporate tax giveaways, which Vermont is not immune to. Um, You know, over and over you see policies at at state level and beyond favoring the very wealthy and powerful, whether they're corporate entities, hospitals, pharmaceutical entities, and like that. So personally and across the board, basically the progressives have worked hard to interrupt that power grab that you see happening in our country among the very wealthy and trying to um, push policies that promote working families, recognizing most Vermonters, as most Americans are, are not wealthy. Uh, We're living paycheck to paycheck and struggling to get by, and we deserve to have state policy and a state government that recognizes that basic economic picture. And when you say
1: that the wealthy need to pay their fair share, what exactly does that mean to you? What should the tax rate be, and how can we prevent the wealthy from finding and exploiting loopholes in the tax
2: code? Well, a lot of these actually have to be answered uh, to be totally effective, have to be answered at the federal level. So before Ronald Reagan came into the White House, of course, wealthy in this country paid what would be, by today's standard, an enormous income tax. Um, So, you know, what we can do at the state level, we do have a progressive income tax in Vermont. We're somewhat limited if our neighboring states are not willing to join us at how far we can go. Uh, We also have a fairly aggressive estate tax but we should push that further in my opinion. The biggest outlier to an overall progressive taxation system here in Vermont is our property tax which is a big portion of our state revenue because that's how we largely fund schools. We have provided a system so that lower income families, work class families are not uh, overly penalized by the Uh, property tax, but we have really let wealthy families off the hook. So in Vermont, uh, an average family, a a middle-class family pays about 3% of their income towards the schools through their property tax. A wealthy Vermonter pays a percentage or a half percent. That has such a a big impact on our overall tax burden in the state that if you look at those metrics, basically middle-class families are paying the the largest percentage of our tax burden and that is something we've worked hard to correct. We will keep working hard to correct, but we have some some way to go for sure.
1: So you said that in regards to the tax code we need action on a federal level. That's something your state also encountered when it tried to implement single payer on a state level, Green Mountain Care. That effort failed. It was actually ended by a Democratic
2: governor. Why exactly did it fail? That is, uh, we could have a whole show about that very question. I was uh, on the House Healthcare Committee at that time, so I know quite a bit about it. It it has a a lot to do with um, the current economics of healthcare in Vermont are sort of accidentally progressive. Uh, And by that I mean most small businesses uh, don't pay for healthcare because by fluke, A spouse works for a larger employer. So outside of the legislature, I run a small consulting business because our legislature is very part-time. I'm a good example. My wife is a public school teacher. So our family gets its health care from her school district. Um, Many, if you look at small lawyer practices or retail outlets in downtown Burlington, many of those businesses actually have their workers covered by the University of Vermont or the University of Vermont Medical Center or uh, public school system or some other larger employer like uh, Global Foundries and so forth. Um, so we're accidentally progressive. So one of the great promises of a, a single-payer healthcare system is that the, the wealthy will pay their fair share and middle-income and um, lower-income middle and, and lower families will have more affordable options. But the fact is designing the financing of that system at a state level is very tricky because today, by accident, the funding is set up in a in a progressive way. And I do call it accidentally progressive. It wasn't designed that way. It just sort of sugared out that way. So that's a really tricky dynamic to grapple with if you are trying to create uh, a system that You know, you can't walk down Main Street and effectively have a a tax system for healthcare that penalizes those small businesses. That just is is not a a recipe for success. Um, The other dynamic that is true in Vermont is that we have covered more people than just about any other state. We usually wrestle with Massachusetts to be first or second most covered uh, in terms of health insurance in the in the country and so when you are promoting the great promise of single-payer health and you're saying yeah everybody's gonna have health care and vermonters are looking around and saying well i have health care and my neighbors have health care you're not solving a, a problem whereas say in canada when they shifted to single-payer health care only a little over half the people actually had health insurance we're up well into the 90s 90 percentage of people being covered some of these problems were are really difficult to to tackle at a state level and and there are a host of other problems there I would fault some of the political leadership of the governor at the time who who really wasn't making it a crusade the way you would need to uh, in terms of taking it to the business community and really getting them on board he always thought maybe we could come up with a financing system that the big businesses would like and that somehow the small businesses would swallow He never did that, and and so um, there was general atrophy in terms of the the energy to get it there. Also, wrapped up in the middle here was the Affordable Care Act that came online between the time that the governor won an election promising to deliver single-payer and the time when we were supposed to actually make good on the promise of single-payer. We put up a state-run exchange, the health exchange through the Obamacare, And that was an abomination. It just did not work. Our website was down. It was late. It was more expensive. It was just a nightmare. And uh, that really sapped a lot of the energy and the faith that the state government could pull it off. So it it was not one thing. Uh, It's not fair to completely lay it out of the the hands of the governor, Peter Shumlin at the time. Uh, But, you know, it was kind of, any number of things came together in a perfect storm that made it very difficult for us to get all the way there. And do you believe that there is
1: hope for single-payer on a state level going into the future?
2: I have really mixed feelings about that. There are a number of big questions that we worked hard to answer over many years and did not come up with answers. Maybe other states could do it. Uh, But when a state is working under several layers of federal law around Medicare, around Medicaid, around insurance law. Uh, That makes it really difficult. And one of the the ways to think about it is, of course, the promise of single-payer is the efficiency that you gain out of the system by making it simple. Well, what about when a uh, uh, somebody from upstate New York comes across our border to go skiing and gets injured? You know, the hospital treats that person and then they have to bill that person's insurance from New York State. So the promise of eliminating all the bureaucrats to deal with insurance doesn't really hold up because the hospital still needs to be able to reclaim that money from uh, an out of state visitor. So. You know, you basically have enough of these little um, interruptions to the theory of simplicity that you winnow down the potential savings. So I think it was tricky for a state like us that's geographically surrounded by other states. We're quite a small state population-wise, but geographically, you know, we we have a lot of visitors here from other states. Those kinds of dynamics might be different in, say, Texas or California, where the geographic scenario is is just more conducive to having one system, if that makes sense.
1: How will the Progressive Party be approaching healthcare in this legislative session?
2: Well, we've looked at uh, a lot. There's a lot of work to do between where we stand today and getting to single payer. So we have... Been very consistently pushing pharmaceutical industry to bring affordable medicine to Vermonters. This is the single fastest uh, line item in our health budgets is is prescription drugs. We last year passed a bill to try to force the industry to uh, allow us to reimport medicine from Canada. You know that's uh, we got the governor to sign that bill. We sort of set out a process to explore that option. I don't believe we've been able to accomplish that, but we'll keep pushing on things like that. Um, We last year also invested a lot of money in in primary care and in mental health in particular. There's a lot of strategies that um, the state can employ to keep costs down and actually deliver better results uh, to Vermont patients. All of that um, gets us in a better position to Transition to a universal health system if we have costs under control and are delivering better outcomes So there's a lot of work we can do um, that's also around our rural nature Very difficult in rural parts of this country to get adequate access to primary care um, That's not unique to Vermont, but it's something that we're trying to attack so that uh, Vermonters have access to basic medical care no matter where they live um, there, the list goes on and on of, of, of improvements we need to make. Some of them are sweeping and large. Some of them are small, but have real bearing on people's lives.
0: I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us.
1: And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer Greg Stevens and our producers Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia Brown.
0: Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com/millenpolitics. That's patreon.com/M I L L E N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show.
1: As you said, There needs to be action on a federal level for many of these issues. We're kind of seeing action in the opposite direction, given the current administration and the Republican Congress, soon to be only Senate. What exactly has Vermont done and what can states do to oppose Donald Trump and the GOP's federal agenda?
2: It's a great question. Um, We've done some of it around law enforcement and trying to protect migrant workers here in Vermont, as an example we've done some stuff around uh trying to protect the the notion that the federal government's setting up registries to protect you know religious freedoms and um we want to protect vermonters who come from different backgrounds or who maybe are uh, um have immigrated into vermont and into the country so we've been looking at strategies like that we've been looking at uh, we're one of the f- states to legalize marijuana and, and look at other um, criminal justice reforms that, in many cases, the federal government is standing in the way of. Uh, so th- those are some of the ones that jumped to mind. It's a great question. We are also had looked at the tax cut, had implications at, in Vermont's tax code, and we were not so interested in rewarding very, very wealthy people who don't really need a tax break, so we... We look to um, try to minimize the impact that Trump's tax cut had on Vermont taxpayers, um, both so that we didn't reward wealthy Vermonters and we um, didn't punish working class folks. So, you know, any any given week, uh, the disasters that come out of Congress and, and the White House bear, um, we, we feel a burden to try to, to slow them, mitigate them. The other one is on climate change. You know, we pressured the governor to sign on to uh, join other states in, in saying we would meet the Paris Accord, even though Trump was withdrawing. Um, so, they, they, again, it ranges from issues big and small. But I think you're right. We, we need states, especially progressive states like Vermont, to really push hard on Congress and, and stand up to them. And uh, net neutrality is another example. We passed a bill ensuring as best we could that we would protect Vermonters from net neutrality. Actually, the telecoms are suing us right now. So it it just is sort of issue by issue. We have to figure out strategies to resist.
1: What is the Progressive Party and what is your office doing right now to engage millennials?
2: We have um, all sorts of strategies, I would say. Uh, We're trying to be as active as we can be on campus. We have a young progressive chapter which is, uh, moving beyond just the UVM progressives, but, uh, to, to capture folks from all over the region and into the progressive party. We've seen, uh, some of our youngest candidates running this past cycle. Um, and we're, we're, we're trying to, you know, I, I, for instance, file a bill around tuition free, uh, higher education, uh, that's not because i want to pander to to millennials but it's because i believe that you know our student debt crisis and and higher ed in vermont is completely out of reach for way too many families that i hope also um energizes young people to get involved in in politics i, I will say you know other policies that i had a hand in passing vermont was the fourth or fifth state to pass automatic voter registration we also have uh same day voter registration in Burlington alone, last election in November, we saw 2,000 people registered to vote. You know, we're we're living in a city of only 40,000 people. So these policies, um, I, I think, are, are a way to uh, help millennials participate and hopefully signal, hey, we're really interested in you being very active in, in, in local government and state government and the progressive party, but frankly, in any party. I mean, I just want people to... Get engaged and feel empowered, and and in Vermont, we we operate at a scale that makes it very clear young people can have a, a major major impact in in elections and in our uh, what we debate in Montpelier and ultimately the policies we enact. Um, they they can have that by by showing up and and at rallies, by coming to testify, by interning, by running for office, by holding office, um, and on and on and on. We. There should be no line between ages when it comes to public policy, but for too often, particularly state governments, have run by retired folks. You know, we badly need the voice of young people in our process. You know, for me, I've been very, very engaged in climate issues and trying hard to bring Vermont into a leadership role nationally for fighting climate change. Young people, it's a good example of, of a place where, Millennials and young people generally totally get this issue and are rightly terrified and, and demanding action from leaders we're We're not going to make progress if if young folks are sitting on the sidelines, and so we're, it's essential that we find strategies to engage uh, our young citizens and and you know I try to talk to schools a lot, basically say yes when when folks reach out and want to get engaged. And lastly, how can folks engage with you in particular, and where can they find you online? Um, you can find me on Facebook. My Facebook page is Vote Pearson. I'm very active on Twitter, Senator CP. Uh, I'm on Instagram, um, which is C Pearson VT. Uh, but email, telephone, um, and and then young people that that want to are, are often coming down to the state house. It's very approachable. I, I have folks who follow me around for a day or come back and intern another time. Um, You know, we have uh, classes of UVM students who help us do research in the legislature. You know, we have very, very little staff. I don't have any personal staff. I don't have an office in the state house. We are a very small, part-time citizen legislature. And so um, folks can just walk right up and introduce themselves and ask me questions. I'd be glad to try to help. Okay, awesome. Well, thank
1: you so much, Senator, for coming on to the podcast. And we hope to have you on again in 2019 to hear about all the progress you've made.
2: Jordan, thanks so much for reaching out. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Of
1: course. And lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8pm Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.